2: and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has
1: experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we will be talking to one of the top and most decorated neurologists in the world, Dr. Andrew Lees. He is a professor of neurology at the National Hospital for Neurosurgery and Neurology uh, in Queen Square, London, and the University College, London. In 2011, he was named as the world's most highly cited Parkinson's disease researcher. He is here today to talk about his book, Mentored by a Madman, The William Burroughs Experiment. This is a book that provides a fascinating insight into the career of Dr. Lees, one of the most brilliant minds in the field of neurology. Dr. Andrew Lees, welcome to the show. It is an absolute pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Jeremy. Andrew, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. In the book, you say that you originally wanted to be a botanist. Uh, how did you end up a neurologist and uh, where you are today?
0: Y- yes, well, I uh, as a child, I didn't play doctors and nurses, and I don't think... I had any more empathy than any of my peers. Um, nobody in my family, uh, was a doctor. Um, in England at that time, medicine was a bit of a dynastic, uh, speciality. It's changed a lot now. Um, but at that time, if your father was a doctor, you often ended up being a doctor too. But there was nobody at all in my family with, um, a medical degree. Um, and as a teenager, I got very interested in natural history, particularly botany, but also entomology and uh, ornithology too. And I joined um, the local natural history club in the north of England, uh, where I was born. Um, and uh, I, when I was, my, my parents at that time suggested that there wasn't much uh, opportunities to be to be a professional botanist, and there was only <laughs> David, David Attenborough was already um, very famous and in, in England, and perhaps had had the market as the only one. Uh, so I think it was. Although I resented the advice at the time, I think it was very wise advice. I think there may be more opportunities now for for botanical research and botanical field work and so on than there was then. Um, So they kind of gently nudged me towards medicine. Um, And in my interview at the medical school in London, uh, I was asked how, how I expressed it. I told them I was very interested in natural history. And they said, how do you think that would uh, help you to be a good doctor and um, i at the time, of course, I said um, well it, you know many uh, medicines come from plants, and the study of plants and materia medica uh, was actually a speciality in the past that was part of the training of a, of every medical student it 's now mm-hmm. subsumed under clinical pharmacology but when I look back now, I mean, I think what, what meds, what, what botany taught me, even though studying the anatomy of flowers and the function of flowers and plants has no direct relevance to the study of human disease, what, what the discipline taught me was to observe, um, very meticulously and very carefully. It, it, it increased my powers of, of observation and, Equally importantly, um, it uh, encouraged me to record in detail what I saw. And these are very basic skills for medicine, even in the days of computers and so on. We need to, certainly in neuro, neurology is very much a visual art, so that mm-hmm. many fully established neurological diseases you can pick up on the tube or in the street. Uh, it's a visual speciality. Um, And the powers of observation remain very, very important um, in eliciting physical signs. So I I think that was the sort of connection. And of of course, I mean, medicine is not... Medicine, I always think of medicine as a sort of intermediary. It's between art and science. It's really uh, the, the art of... Healing is, of course, an art, but we depend very heavily on science for... The understanding of mechanisms of disease. So, uh, an interest in natural history and biology f- fits nicely in the middle there. It's not right. hardcore science like physics and maths.
2: Right. I, I I love that you call healing an art. I think that's that's really neat. Um, so. I will admit, uh, before reading this book, I did not know a lot about William Burroughs. I knew that he was the author of Naked Lunch and had provided inspiration for both the beat movement, as well as a number of uh, popular musicians such as bands like Nirvana and Steely Dan. Um, Seeing as how he is the inspiration for your book and has provided you with numerous other uh, inspirations and intersections throughout your career, can you please tell us a bit about him?
0: Well, he was born in 1914 in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, He came from a a well-to-do family. His grandfather had um, invented the first adding machine, so he he certainly didn't come from a poor background. Um, And despite his uh, abuse of drugs throughout most of his life, he lived to be 83 um, and uh, died in 1997. I mean, he's best known, I suppose, as um, one of the leading lights in the what, what's now called the Beat Generation, along with Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, both of whom were very close friends of his when he was a young man. But later in his life, he always divorced himself from that. It, well, he didn't accept that there was a Beat Movement. He felt that, the, for example, right. those, those three individuals were very, very different in uh, their outlook and, and their creative art. But but that's how, uh, of course, he's best remembered. And then mm-hmm. uh, in comparison, I, I would say even to Kerouac, and certainly uh, compared with Ginsberg, he's, he's lasted much longer. And part of that is because he was adopted as a prophet and a guru by the punks and the post-punk generation. So that his his um, writing became a kind of uh, message for a generation of musicians. And I think that that um, has helped him to survive longer in the public awareness than perhaps, certainly compared with Ginsberg. I'm not saying Ginsberg isn't remembered, but but, but (laughs) I think think, think Burroughs is... Um, ideas. And his um, uh, writing uh, has certainly more to tell us about contemporary America and the rest of the world than perhaps Kerouac or Ginsburg.
2: Can you please tell us what inspired you to write the book? And at the same time, share some of the, the reservations you had about writing it as well. Well, it's
0: a sort of, I mean, it's a sort of dressed up memoir. I mean, I call it a fantasia, which is a bit of a uh, literary conceit because it really is a memoir but most doctors memoirs are so dry and boring that i i wanted to try and <laughs> escape from that genre in a sense but it, it it is and of course i also wanted to write about myself um, i've had i've had a career where i've known you know most doctors are not really encouraged to talk about themselves we're taught to listen uh, but not to talk about ourselves not just in a consultation but in our publications, so that scientific writing is, of course, very dry, um, and it's not first person; it's it's it's, it's third person. You know, so um, I, I was quite keen as I came towards the end of my career to write a little bit about myself. And I, I, I the the other reason for writing really was that I was concerned about the direction that medical research is going um, Mm -hmm. and disappointed in fact that despite 40 years of trying to find a cure for Parkinson's disease, I I felt I'd failed. and I wanted to review in a way why I'd failed. Uh, Was it my fault? Was it the system's fault? Uh, Why haven't we made more progress in this group of very brutal neurodegenerative disorders, which include Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Lou Gehrig's disease, and so on. So that was a kind of um, another reason for writing the book. So it's not, the book's really not about the art of healing, as I mentioned, I think that's another book for another time. Um, William Burroughs would have been a dreadful role model for anybody who uh, wants to be a good doctor. In fact, he, you know, one of his leading characters, Doc Benway in Naked Lunch is the antithesis of good doctoring. And he wrote a lot about bad doctors and mad doctors uh, in his writing. So, but but where he helped me uh, really, well, he helped me in a number of ways, but I think throughout my career, um, the advice he gave me through his writings uh, were very helpful in navigating the the med- medical science, the the, the mm-hmm. bureaucracy and the control systems uh, within medical science. So I, I think he he can speak to people who are researchers uh, mm-hmm. much more than physicians, really. And uh, I, my job is a divided job. I spend half my week seeing patients in consulting rooms and you know, trying to treat the sick. Uh, but the other half of the week has always been involved in trying to find new cures uh, for Parkinson's disease. And, and it's that, that half of my professional life where I think Burroughs um, has been helpful to
2: me. When, when and how did you first find out about Burroughs?
0: Well, I... I, I studied medicine in the 60s. And of course, this was the the time of the countercultural movement. And in those days, all of us read the same books. It's not like now there was no internet and there were fashionable books. And in fact, most of my peers all read the same books. And if you were a bit trendy and a bit hip, Naked Lunch was one of the books uh, that was on the reading list. Um, And I first actually encountered William Burroughs on the front cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club, Hearts Club Band in 1967, The Beatles' album. And it being a bit of an obsessive nerd, which probably augured well for my future career in neurology, unlike most of my friends, I actually wanted to know who all those people were on the front cover. And there is no key in in Sergeant Peppers to who is on the front cover, but I managed to go find a key and and one of the people actually I could only I only recognized about twenty percent of the people on the front cover And so one of the eighty percent I didn't recognize was William Burroughs, who was simply described as a writer um, at mm-hmm. that time and it wasn't until two years later that uh, at a time of actual great. I I was having great difficulty with continuing my medical studies. I was quite disillusioned. Some of the things I was seeing in the hospital um, I I found quite shocking. Um, Some of the things we were expected to do, uh, I rebelled a little bit against. And it was at that point that I was actually given naked lunch by a friend to read. And um, I entered into a sort of metaphorical Faustian bargain with William Burroughs after I'd read Naked Lunch. And he said to me, uh, provided you listen to what I have to say, uh, I'll let you complete your medical studies. Of course, this is metaphorical, of course. It's it's not, right. it didn't actually happen, but but so I stopped it. you know, I, I I there were there was a real danger at that time that I could have flunked my exams and given up medicine. Um, so I I see him as a kind of saviour, really, uh, in a curious sort of way. Um, uh, so that I got through my exams, and I've tried, and I did try and keep my bargain. So since then, over the next thirty years, I've read Naked Lunch several times, and I've read really virtually all the whole Burroughs canon, and there's quite an extensive. Literature. He wrote many books other than Naked Lunch, a lot of essays, uh, and of course, in his later life, he became quite a, a public performer. He was a great reader with his Saint Louis drawl, and uh, he mm-hmm. he would read at not just at universities but at uh, literary and pop festivals, um, and was adopted by a, a younger generation. So he he uh, made, there's a lot for people who don't know about Burroughs and want to be introduced to him maybe one way of re- getting introduced to him is to go on YouTube you know first of all and re- and look at the many uh, readings and interviews that, that that are available there
2: you know you mentioned earlier Burroughs had an interesting view of and relationship with doctors um, he even originally wanted to become a doctor can you please share uh, you know how doctors were pertained uh, portrayed in his work, and what made you know his character of Doctor Benway that you previously mentioned stand out so much to you? Yeah, well,
0: he he read um, uh, English literature at Harvard, um, and but but I don't think he attended many of the lectures. He he was one of these students who made his own curriculum up. So he was academic. I mean, he was very well read, but mm-hmm. he he read a lot of anthropology and a lot of magic. Uh, uh, while he was at Harvard. And when he left Harvard, um, he also did a postgraduate course at Columbia in anthropology and remained, I think, very interested in anthropology throughout his life, which is often an intro into medicine so that we do we do a brief course of anthropology as part of our medical degrees. And I think um, when he began to realise in his um 20s that he wasn't, you know, he 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 had a few problems. Um remember he was homosexual at a time when homosexuality was a criminal offense uh in the right. United States. Uh he was attracted to a gangster lifestyle and hung around with lowlifes uh in New York City when he met Ginsburg and Kerouac. And um, it was around that time that he started to have psychoanalysis, which he he had on and off for about 10 years. And about that time, he toyed with the idea himself of of becoming a psychiatrist. And um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was one thing at high school that he'd not passed, which was at that time, mandatory to do medical studies in the United States, and he didn't—he couldn't be bothered to go back and do it. But he discovered that while he was travelling in Europe, that you could enroll for a medical degree uh, in Vienna, and this was just before World War II, um, without this particular qualification. So he did actually enroll uh, as a medical student in at the University of Vienna. But he developed. Uh, I don't think he was doing very well anyway. But he developed appendicitis, and then he never went mm. back. So, but but I think then throughout his life, in a way, he saw himself as a. He had a very conflicted and ambiguous relationship with doctors. Um, in a sense, he saw himself as a doctor to his friends, his close friends, and many of you know Kerouac and Ginsberg, for example, were quite a bit younger than him, and he he was a kind of avuncular. Therapeutic father figure for many of them, uh, and he. But but his his contacts with doctors were generally traumatic. So he had all this psychoanalysis, all of which he concluded was absolutely useless. Um, many different therapists in New York and Chicago. He also had contact with uh, the kind of doctors who push prescriptions. So you know he came to see. The the doctor patient relationship a bit like the pusher patient the pusher junkie relationship that Mm -hmm. these these doctors were just prescribing him dope for money and were not really taking any interest in his substance dependence so he had quite a a bad experience he he encountered bad doctors I think um, uh, early on or at least doctors that couldn't do much to help him and I think I think he then came to see doctors as a, a representative of uh control figures and of course we are i mean like the police in a sense we're we are a member we are we are members of the establishment so i think he he vented some of his spleen relating to control and control society control on doctors he saw doctors as people who carried on the system you know in in that sense um and i think that explains partly his characterization of benway he had there are many other figures but benway is the the best one he writes a lot about different doctors mm-hmm. benway of course i mean one of the things that burroughs was very frightened of was mind control i mean you remember that this was a period of lobotomies and electric shocks. And people with homosexuality were being treated um, with some of these very invasive psychiatric treatments, aversive therapy, and so on. Um, But Burroughs was terrified of mind control. Um, Paradoxically, people said that he would have made a very good um, member of the CIA uh, if if he'd been offered a job in the CIA because he had a kind of spooky... Uh, exterior to him. But um, he was at the same time very frightened of um, any form of control. And I think that led him to portray Bendway as uh, an unscrupulous, sadistic medical scientist who did uh, experiments um, on his patients without consent. Right. So I expect I expect you're wondering what, what how somebody like this could be a mentor, to, <laughs> a <mentor laughs> medical research. So he, he seems, uh, uh, and of course this was the you know many many people have been surprised that uh, I have had William Burroughs as a me- uh, as a, a virtual mentor. In fact, I, I'm one of the few people who have never met him. He was like like most of the Beat Generation. He was incredibly open and very sociable so if you were to knock on his door and as a complete stranger he would let you in and he would talk to you he was a very uh courteous person in that sense a bit withdrawn and remote and silent but he it, the number of people i've met since i wrote the book who have actually met him is enormous so he certainly was not uh, somebody who hid himself away and just hang, hung around with junkies he he was very open in that sense, mm-hmm. um, so I never I never met him. So all this is a virtual uh, mentorship. But some of the people who I've met, and James Grauholz, who runs the Burroughs Estate, who kindly wrote the forward for my book, uh, told me that you know you that I'd got so much out of him that maybe if I'd met him, I wouldn't have got as much out of him as I, I did by just reading his book so that kind of reassured me i was i've always been a bit disappointed i didn't meet him but um -hmm. uh, the fact that i didn't i think isn't probably neither here nor there so he yeah so he um yeah that that that, that's that's kind of how i met him through an Mm -hmm. indirect way
2: Right, right. Uh, In the book, you also discuss that you learned a lot from uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The The Complete Works of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, You even said that the uh, Baker Street sleuth's method of crime detection proved far greater value to you than anything you read in in Lord Brain's Diseases of the Nervous System. Can can you please explain this for us?
0: Yes, I I had... uh, um some very interesting teachers uh, when I started my residency in neurology in London, Um, one of them, Dr. William Goody, who was one of my doctor mentors. William Burroughs was my non medical mentor. But I also, of course, had medical mentors. And Mm -hmm. uh, for most doctors, the we learn most from patients, of course, our patients are our real mentors. That's where we get most of our at least where I get most of my ideas for research and so on. But uh, William Goody told me, um, don't you know, you will learn uh, neurology from listening to what your patients have to tell you. So pay close attention. Uh, and don't bother to read any textbooks of neurology um but what i would recommend is that you read uh, marcel proust a la recherche du temps perdu and the complete works of sherlock holmes well it took me a lot a lot of time to finish proust in fact i only finished proust about 10 years ago but looking back on proust i think proust is a kind of neuroscientist and for anybody of course, his father was a doctor, and he mingled very much through his own medical il- illnesses with the, the great neurologists of Paris in the 19th century. But um, if you want to know about memory, and particularly involuntary memory, uh, you can learn a great deal from Proust. And I think also out of that, I began to learn that I could... Learn about medicine much more from original descriptions of disease, many of which were nineteenth century, and some of which actually occurred in novels rather than in medical learned textbooks than I could by modern textbooks. It, they just seem to the descriptions seem to be more vivid and more alive. So that that was the Proust advice. Now the so yes, yeah, so the Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Um, uh, w- was an easier recommendation from my teacher in the sense that i 'd read much of Sherlock Holmes before he was recommended to me uh, as many young people in England do and um, each generation of young people seems to read it seem to rediscover sherlock Holmes and as you know he 's very popular now um, mm-hmm. partly through the television series of uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Robert downey um, but he um And he survived and of course he didn't live Sherlock Holmes didn't live so he's fiction he's a fictional um, character of Arthur Conan Doyle who was a physician Um, whereas many of the heroes of that era uh, David Livingston the British discover explorer and so on are all forgotten young people have forgotten those great heroes of Victorian times but Sherlock Holmes lives on and Sherlock Holmes, um, uh, I think, I mean, the, the discipline of um, the speciality of medical legal jurisprudence, which is now called forensic medicine, uh, developed pari passu with neurology at the end of the 19th century. So these were two new specialities that were coming into existence at around the same time. And some of the first neurologists had joint appointments in forensic medicine because of, you know, the links between insanity and crime. Um, could epilepsy cause homicides and this sort of thing? So there was a, a, a parallel trajectory of uh, in that sense. But um, the solving of crimes, particularly of the sort that Sherlock did, de- fictional detectives do and the great forensic scientists of the beginning of the 20th century did, bears an enormous amount of parallels with the diagnostic process in clinical neurology. Neurology is still like psychiatry, and perhaps with internal medicine, is still very much a narrative-based uh, speciality. So taking a good, careful history is still intrinsically important Uh, to the business of neurology, even now in the 21st century with all the modern developments of technology such as imaging and so on. So unlike some aspects of medicine, for example, metabolic medicine or renal disease to a certain degree, which has been taken over by technology, neurology and psychiatry are still very much related to the history. So you have to... Mm. You have to get your facts from the history. uh, And then the neurological examination depends, as I've already mentioned, on careful powers of observation. And then you have to put it all together uh, with a deductive or sometimes is said an inferential abductive reasoning, which is what Sherlock Holmes did in his Detective, uh, detecting of of crime, so um, you can learn uh, a great deal from that. And what what um, interested me is that um, when I came to write this book, because I haven't. I mean, Sherlock Holmes, I think, is somebody who can be very helpful to neurologists in their clinical practice, in their diagnostic practice, but it's not that much used for research, apart from. That you must pay attention to detail and uh, negatives are important uh, pay attention to trifles all these sorts of things which mm-hmm. uh, are very important but um, he's very important for clinical medicine whereas burrows uh, as i've already said uh, i found a much more helpful me- mentor uh, in medical research now what's interesting is that during the research for my book i Learned that Allen Ginsberg had uh, often referred to William Burroughs as a Sherlock Holmes-like figure, um, which which surprised me really. Um, But when when I came to think about it, um, it it wasn't so far uh, from reality because. But Burroughs were always dressed very. He he dressed very smartly. He always wore English suits, English ties. in a way, he was very he, he was very traditional in his reading um, matter. Uh, he read a lot of nineteenth century literature. He carried a gun, which Sherlock Holmes car- always carried a weapon. Uh, he was a misogynist, uh, as as Sherlock Holmes was, and he was quite scientific in his way of thinking. So that he, for example, in the sixties, when he became friendly with Timothy Leary. Um, he accused Timothy Leary of being very, very unscientific, which, of course, was true. And Burroughs's writings about his, what, what I consider his self-experimentation with psychedelic drugs and other drugs, mm-hmm. uh, recreational drugs, was always very um, objective, in a sense. It was almost as if he was using his own brain as a kind of petri dish to to study the effects of these drugs on mind and consciousness. And when I um, wanted to, when I had later on in my career, when some of the patients that we were treating with drugs for Parkinson's disease actually became dependent on the drugs and I needed to learn up about addiction, I found reading Junkie and Burroughs' other writings about um, substance dependence much more... Instructive and informative than much of the what what's sometimes unkindly called psycho babble, which, which is a sort of ra- rather uh, jargon written literature related to psychology and and substance dependence written by biological psychiatrists and experimental psychologists. Mm-hmm. So this may reflect a certain amount about me, but again, I found that reading Burroughs is personal accounts of addiction and his observations about what caused addiction much more instructive for me going forward with my research.
2: So you're world famous for your contributions to Parkinson's research. Uh, Can you please share with us a bit about L-DOPA, what it is, when you first heard of L-DOPA as a treatment for Parkinson's and, and how your early work with it inspired you to focus your career on Parkinson's research and treatment?
0: Well, well, I was fortunate in, I mean, I, in the 60s was the era of neurochemistry for brain disease. And, of course, this was, this backed onto the real change away from psychoanalysis and Freud so that um, brain neurochemistry was was shedding light or was thought to be shedding light on most mental illness as well as neurological illness. So, for example, around that time, it was felt that serotonin, deficiency was an important factor in causing depression. Dopamine excess was considered to be important in the causation of schizophrenia. And in particular, dopamine deficiency was found to be a very important cause for Parkinson's disease. And in the mid-60s, the first really effective treatment for Parkinson's disease became available, which was L-DOPA, which is a a naturally occurring amino acid found in beans, which gets across the blood-brain barrier where it's converted into dopamine. So it's a sort of top-up for the deficient dopamine in the brain. You can't give dopamine itself because dopamine doesn't get across the blood-brain barrier. It's all destroyed in peripheral tissue. So you have to use this kind of Trojan horse approach. And I was very Mm -hmm. fortunate in that I was one of the very first British doctors to be able to use L-DOPA. I was a very young intern at that time. And the effects were really, I mean, this is an overhyped word now, but the, the effects were really miraculous. I mean, people who had been given a death sentence of Parkinson's disease, who were confined to wheelchairs, unable to move or speak... Uh, were literally reawakened and resurrected with L-DOPA. So it was the the idea that a a disease that had rotted your brain could be corrected by an amino acid was really quite revolutionary at that time. And, of course, this this was the exciting area to be in. So it's a bit like molecular biology today. So this is where many young... Neurologists were were drawn into that, including myself. And at that time we felt we'd crack everything. You know, we thought we'd have a chemical replacement for Alzheimer's disease, which hasn't proved to be the case. We mm-hmm. thought we'd we'd crack Lou Gehrig's disease. We haven't managed to do that. And fifty years on, as I come to the end of my career, I'm still telling patients that L-DOPA is the best treatment for Parkinson's disease. So in that sense, when I compare my career with, for example, cardiologists who where there have been amazing transformations of care in cardiology or even in AIDS uh, or even in oncology, um, we, we've not done a very good job. So, you know, I, I have patients now coming to see me who say, oh, Professor Lees, uh, you treated my uh, father and he had Parkinson's disease with L-dopa. Surely you've got something better than L-dopa to offer me, and we we haven't, in in all honesty. So, you, you know, this this in a sense has been a disappointment. But it, but I think it's important to um, say that this is a very very effective drug. So the bar mm-hmm. the bar is very high. So to get a drug better than L-dopa. Uh, is quite difficult. Um and I think that's of course one of the reasons why we haven't made more progress is because compared with other diseases like multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's and so on, the bar is very high. We have a very, very good treatment which um, people with Alzheimer's if if we if we could offer something similar to people with Alzheimer's disease um and multiple sclerosis it would really transform their lives so it is a it is a very effective treatment but it's not a cure and people get complications from the treatment uh, and the disease continues to get slowly worse so it's not stopping the disease progressing it's it's controlling and masking the symptoms
2: Right, L-dopa L- seemed to be, you know, as you said, an almost miraculous treatment for Parkinson's, uh, but but it did come with some downsides as well, such as the the on-off uh, switch patients experience while using the drug. Um, this caused you to uh, research both uh, depronil and uh, Bromocryptine as treatments for Parkinson's as well. Can you please tell us a bit about your journey with researching those two drugs?
0: Um, yes, um, well. Uh, the, these were the the first adjuvant treatments that were introduced into clinical practice to help us alongside L-DOPA. Um, mm-hmm. I should say that although I was fortunate in that both of them, I was a very still a very young researcher and a young doctor, and I, I was fortunate in that both were translated into clinical practice. You know, many of the, the young doctors working today do research on drugs which never come through into clinical practice there's a massive dropout so that less than 20 percent of um drugs that are in the pipeline and which are tested on patients never get into clinical practice so i was really lucky that both the first two drugs i tried that's to say bromocriptine and deprinil uh, before they were available clinically uh, actually came into clinical practice so um Bromocryptine is um, a drug which uh, structurally is very like uh, LSD, uh, which is interesting, Uh, and it was marketed by Sandoz, um, and it it was at Sandoz where Albert Hoffman, uh, while working on ergot alkaloids, by chance discovered the psychedelic properties of LSD, so... Bromocryptine is not very different in its structure from uh, LSD which of course meant that when it was first introduced as a possible treatment for Parkinson's disease we were all a little bit concerned that it might have similar psychiatric uh, effects uh, and in fact it does it can cause hallucinations but but not not very often and many patients Thousands of patients have benefited uh, from its use. Um, So that that um, that I think, apart from trialing it and um, developing experience in doing clinical trials, I think I think that also helped me in the sense that I realised that there was quite a lot of interplay between psychopharmacology and the treatment Mm -hmm. of mental illness. Uh, and the treatment of Parkinson's disease. And um, LSD actually is, uh, everybody knows about its effects on serotonin. So it's a powerful stimulator of serotonin receptors, but it also stimulates dopamine receptors too. So, in theory, um, in small doses, LSD might actually be an interesting trial drug to consider even now for Parkinson's disease. But we instead, we use this very similar drug called bromocriptine. Now, Mm. the the lessons I learned from the other drug, Deprinil, which is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, um, that these drugs had been used in depression, non-selective monoamine oxidase inhibitors, but they'd fallen out of favor because they had a lot of side effects, particularly a thing called a cheese effect, which is if you eat um, foods containing tyramine, including cheese, you would get catastrophic rises in blood pressure. So that psychiatrists, although they were very effective in helping people with depression, had become wary of using them and newer drugs mm-hmm. had become available. But they break these. this group of drugs breaks down Uh, prevents the breakdown of dopamine in the brain so that if you haven't got enough dopamine, uh, you can um, enhance what you've got left by using monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And Depranil was the first of a new type of monoamine oxidase inhibitor, a selective type that you could use safely without dietary restriction. And also without, uh, in combination with L-dopa uh, therapy. So, we we were the the, the very, very first people to test it. Um, and one of my colleagues from the chemistry department smuggled some white powder through Heathrow Airport <laughs> in a plastic bag in his raincoat. I mean, can you imagine doing that today? I mean, this was in the seventies. And I mean, he could have been arrested, I suppose. <laughs> and without, it, it it's just to, to kind of paint the picture a little bit for younger people listening to this, of how different um, the 70s and 80s were as Amelia for doing research than today. We had enormous freedom and self-experimentation was encouraged. And the first thing we did was take this stuff ourselves i mean not this was not considered to be bravado or cavalier this was considered a very ethical thing to do you know there was a new compound we didn't quite know what it was um or what it would do to people and in those days it was encouraged you know to do it in controlled situations obviously but to test it on yourself so Burroughs of course um helped me with that because he was the arch self experimenter and um uh he he spoke to me and said, "You must test this on yourself. don't believe what what anybody else is telling you about this. you must test it yourself so for i you know those those were different lessons I learned from um those two different drugs that that we We were amongst the earliest investigators to test and go on to test in patients with Parkinson's disease.
2: Uh, Burroughs had lifelong issues with substance abuse. Uh, at one point, his parents sent him to England for treatment for his synthetic opioid addiction. Uh, he came under the care of a Dr. Dent, a protect- practitioner who had gained a reputation for uh, treatment of chronic anxiety and alcohol dependence. Uh, can you please discuss this with us and talk about uh, Burroughs' experience with apomorphine as well as you know what inspired you to test apomorphine as a treatment for Parkinson's?
1: Yes,
0: he, but Burroughs had learned somewhere along the line, probably from a friend while he was in Tangiers in the interzone uh, and badly hooked on synthetic opioids. And I think in risk of his life, quite frankly, I think he realized he was in trouble, uh, that there was a, I mean, he'd already tried um, the the dope farm in Lexington, Kentucky and found it useless and psycho, and he'd, he'd tried many detox um, approaches in different parts of the world without success, but he'd heard about uh, John Dent, who was a a private physician um, working in London using apomorphine. Now, apomorphine had a, despite the name, it's not a narcotic, although it is synthesized from morphine. So you mix morphine with hydrochloric acid, uh, and you get apomorphine. But in contrast to morphine, it doesn't have narcotic properties. And it's been used, it had been used for many years as an aversive emetic uh, in medicine, uh, so that in people who had poison themselves, it was used to make them vomit to get rid of the poison. So it, it, it wasn't a new drug at all. But what was new about dense use of what Burroughs called the junk vaccine, he called apomorphine the junk vaccine, uh, was that Dent believed that it wasn't working in the treatment of alcoholism and substance dependence just as an aversive sort of Pavlovian therapy. It actually had metabolic effects on the back brain so that it actually was having chemical effects which in a sense were resetting the brain and curing it of its addictive potential. And this was quite uh, an advanced hypothesis because if you remember, this was in the 50s and it was before the chemical revolution had occurred. So nobody had any idea at that time that apomorphine was a dopamine agonist. This was only discovered in 1967. So this theory was developed long before one really knew what the drug did. And uh, Burroughs went to see Dent, he was admitted to a clinic in London, and he responded very well, he came off junk, he stayed off junk for a while, he relapsed briefly once and was re-treated with um, apomorphine briefly, so he needed a top-up course. And he remained he became a a rather dubious champion for apomorphine in the States, raging against the Narcotics Bureau, raging against Kentucky, Lexington Kentucky, saying that nobody was prepared to do trials with apomorphine, uh, which he considered to be by far and away the most effective treatment for substance dependence. Uh, At that time, uh, apomorphine was considered a Schedule II drug in the states, which means that it's a drug with strong addictive potential. Although actually, the evidence that it can be addictive is very, is 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 negligible. So I think that this, and it's no longer a Schedule II drug. It's been recategorized, but I think that held it back. Uh, when Bo- and, and perhaps Burroughs championing it, also held it back because pe- people really uh, didn't really want to, didn't pay much attention to junkies at that point, at least in the scientific world. Uh, they were felt to be rather unreliable in what they had to say. But in contrast to all the other doctors, or as Burrow to use Burroughs' word, uh, he used to call doctors croakers. Um, He got on incredibly well with Dent, Um, they were both very interested in Mayan civilizations. they talked about control systems, um, but Dent was anti-establishment too and could see the iniquities and the control systems within medicine and in the drug companies as well, but also within the establishment of medicine. And they got on very, they hit it off and they got on very, very well with one another. And of course, in a sense, this reduced the impact of Burroughs' cure because people often said, oh, well, it was because uh, Dent had a holistic approach. The two of them got on very well. Dent was also quite a charismatic character. And they attributed much of his success in treating alcoholics to um, his, his, his complementary therapy, if you like, in addition to the apomorphine. But what, uh, And the use of apomorphine, which was already, already restricted to uh, a few mavericks throughout Europe, uh, gradually dwindled away. And this was really quite surprising to me because uh, as its use dwindled away, the evidence that it might be an interesting treatment to re-examine, not, not just in Parkinson's disease, but also in uh, substance dependence and addiction, uh, was growing and growing. So, for example, by the 80s, it was well established that dopamine systems controlled pleasure and reward pathways. Uh, many uh, drug addiction specialists believe that the dopamine pathway in one area of the brain was the final common pathway for addictive processes, uh, which made it much more logical for apomorphine to be at least considered and retrialed with modern trial methodologies. But nothing happened. And it wasn't uh, until really the 80s when we were desperately looking around for uh, better ways of treating as you've talked about jeremy the on off effects these were mm-hmm. capricious uh peaks and troughs roller coaster rides that patients were having on uh dopa so that as the as one continued with treatment over the years the effects continued but they were less reliable so that pa- patients began to notice that they were bec- what well, they often said they were becoming immune to the drug or they were becoming tolerant to the drug Uh, but in fact what was happening is that the delivery of the drug to the brain and changes within the receptors in the brain were compromising the continuous consistent response to the drug and it was becoming more patchy and brittle and that this this was the major challenge for us in parkinson's disease in the 80s so I, I, I was like many others, was looking around for options to try and treat this. And I, one night I had a, I continued to read Burroughs. So, and in in the Naked Lunch, there is a, an appendix in which Burroughs describes his experiences with apomorphine and its effects and so on. But I also had a a dream in which. Um, I I saw some structural molecules, and one of these molecules was apomorphine. Uh, I was sitting at the bottom of the sea, and um, these sort of diatom-like, plankton-like molecules were swimming past me, and one of them was apomorphine. And um, I think this, plus um, a rereading of Naked Lunch, Directed me to, and by that stage, we all knew that apomorphine was a dopamine stimulator. Uh, directed me towards apomorphine. Now, at that time, no no pharmaceutical company was manufacturing it. It was a a mature product. There was no money in it. Everybody had lost interest in it. Um, but I decided to pursue it, and uh, I thank Burroughs for that because. Looking back now on my career, um, uh, which has been a reasonably good one, as you kindly mentioned (laughs) in in your introduction, the the thing I'm most proud of is the reintroduction of apomorphine into clinical practice, because this is the only thing I've done which has had a direct impact on patients' welfare and well-being. It's transformed the lives of hundreds of patients. uh, by helping to correct the on off effect, and I you know Burroughs deserves a footnote of recognition uh, for that and i and I suppose in a sense that was another reason I wanted to write the book just to 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 recognize his contribution to that
2: Burroughs at one point traveled to the Amazon and exper- exper- uh, experimented with the hallucinogen yahe or ayahuasca. Uh, that inspired uh, you to go there and, and and experiment as well. Can you please discuss how his journey inspired yours and what your experience was like, as well as uh, what potential medical benefits the drug may have?
0: Yes. Well, although, although I'd been offered psychedelic drugs in my teens and early twenties at medical school, I'd always been too frightened to take them, and I'd restricted myself to a bit of cannabis and hash. Uh, but um, I'd, I'd, as we've already talked, I, I was always interested in psychedelic drugs, uh, and this link with uh, serotonin and dopamine, which came through bromocryptine, had kept them in focus in that sense. Uh, but they, they were not part of my everyday medical practice. But uh, as I as I got into my 60s. I began to feel that I was running very much out of ideas. And I I was aware, actually, that I was becoming much more rigid in my thinking. You know, I I wasn't opening my mind to things, partly because um, uh, Parkinson's, the the literature in Parkinson's was so all-embracing, and it was taking me more and more time to just keep up to date with that, uh, that that I I wasn't... uh, I felt I, I was beginning to think I hadn't got anything else to, new to contribute, so I think it was on it was on that background that when I went uh, to a medical conference uh, in Colombia, um, in in the, and visited Leticia, which is in the Colombian Amazon, and had the opportunity to with, with a, f- a friend to experience to to be offered at ayahuasca that I decided uh that i might take it now of course it's very fashionable to do it now and there's plane loads of people going down from silicon valley to a right, to do it right. so it, it's I, I kind of feel almost ashamed to talk about it because it's become so naff you know everybody's doing it now. <laughs> i can imagine they'll be serving it in starbucks soon but um <laughs> but the, the 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 links the links um with you know actually that you know i'm keep, keep sidetracking a little but you know the, the links between psychedelics uh, and Silicon Valley is a fascinating story, of course, Steve Jobs came out and, and talked about the importance of l s d to him uh, but there was, right. the, the 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 beginning of Silicon Valley is very linked up with psychedelic use in San Francisco in the sixties if you if you research it but that 's a a story anyway for a different day so uh, so anyway I, I i think i had i mean i had a i feel that I had a positive experience um with 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 ayahuasca or yaje which as you say burroughs took when he was a young man i think but burroughs took yaje really to exorcise what he called the ugly spirit which he felt had invaded him after he'd shot in a bizarre william tell accident his common-law wife in mexico city and he'd managed to get off on manslaughter but he was in a pretty low state. He was hooked on drugs so he may have hoped that um, Yachem may have got him off drugs too. Um, but I, I was kind of more attracted to doing it really to see if it would open open up my mind and get rid of some of these very rigid structures which I think acad- academia can bring really um, because we're so, and it's got worse now because I mean we we're spending all our time writing grants, dealing with uh, IRBs in universities, the administrative burden, and so on. Uh, and I, I do think that it uh, opened up new vistas for me and helped me to be, helped me to challenge authority more and do really um, what what I wanted to do um, more than what I felt I had to do. So in that sense, uh, I, it, it was a positive experience for me. I'm not sure if I'll ever take any other psychedelic drugs. I, I, I might, but I, I don't feel driven to take, keep, keep taking them.
2: Andrew, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My, my final question for you is, what are you working on now? We, we're trying
0: to develop uh, an oral junk vaccine, is one thing. Um, so that one of the problems, uh, we've talked a lot about apomorphine. One of the problems for everyday practice is that this drug has to be injected under the skin like insulin. So what we're trying to do with it, and I'm working with a medicinal chemist at Harvard, is to, we've designed, well, he has designed um, several drugs which look like apomorphine and will hopefully have the same effects, but which can be given by mouth. Now, if, if, if we can get a long-acting, powerful oral Uh, aporphine, this would be much more palatable for trials in drug addiction and substance dependence Mm -hmm. and also would be useful in Parkinson's disease too. So that's one thing I'm doing. The other thing I'm doing, which I mentioned in the last chapter of the book, is I'm trying to reinvestigate the possibility that one of the ingredients of ayahuasca, sometimes called the devil's vine, banisteria carpi, uh, which contains a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, uh, might actually be therapeutic for Parkinson's disease. So we're, we're, we've done trials. You can't just do what we did in the 80s anymore. You've got to go through a lot a program of preclinical trials with animals and so on. So we've done, we've done a quite a lot of the animal work and I'm hoping this year that we'll be able to do a small pilot study with Banisteriopsis carpi uh, in people with Parkinson's disease. So th- th- this is, I, s- I suppose these two developments are two developments that really, I think, stem directly out of my my personal ayahuasca ex- experience in 66 six years ago now.
2: That, that sounds great. Uh, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. It was an honor to talk to you and an absolute pleasure. Uh, take care. Thanks, Jeremy.